Shrink Wrap Radio number 861, Peter H. Kim, Ph.D., on how to repair trust. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Peter H. Kim, PhD, is an expert on interpersonal trust. We'll be discussing his 2023 book. How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built, Broken, and Repaired. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Peter Kim, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Dr. Dave. Yeah, well, uh, by the way, I hope I can call you Peter and you can call me David. Sounds perfect. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, yeah, because I want you to be comfortable and uh, for us to really get to know each other here. And uh, so I'm very, you know, you've written this, um, this very significant book that we're going to be discussing, uh, the title of which is How Trust Works. That's the main title. And uh, but I was really fascinated to to uh, read about your background can you kind of, you kind of set the back the backdrop of your life you know to to build up to your topic and uh, I could really relate to much much of it and um, so I'd like to, to dip into your background and uh, now your parents immigrated from Korea while you were still an infant I was two years old at the time we left Wow yes. two years old. And at that time, had uh, Korea had the um, had Korea been uh, partitioned into two countries yet, or not? Uh, it had, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, my parents still have stories uh, about uh, all the things that happened. Uh, my father's family lived in the north before the war. Uh, oh, wow. and they, yeah. they they fled to the south. Uh, and everything they had had been taken away. Uh, so they they certainly have their share of stories about that. Yeah, yeah. And what had your uh, father expected to be when he grew up? <laughs> it was did he get educated for a certain purpose or? Uh... I never asked him what his goals were uh, really? back then yes uh, so he he lived uh, a, a pretty pretty privileged life uh, his own father had become a self-made man they they owned land they had a publishing company they they wow. were doing very well um, at that time and so he uh you know he he lived uh, that kind of life you know and uh, was the was that did all of that happen in the north yes it happened yeah. in the north yeah yeah and, and so um so you can imagine what a shock this must have been uh when when the war happened uh, yeah. it, and uh having to flee and having all of it taken away uh so it was a pretty tragic set of circumstances. Yes, really, the, uh, the life of, uh, of of refugees. And so how did your father and, and your father and mother, were there siblings as well? 
So both my parents come from very large families. Uh, so many, many siblings uh, scattered around the world. I actually met uh, one of my um one of my cousins that uh, I had never met before, she's in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and, and we met in Berlin for another cousin's wedding. <laughs> so, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Amazing. And what about brothers and sisters? Did you have any of those? I have two younger brothers, one that was a year younger than me. And uh, well, he still is a year younger than I am. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, he had that, uh, you know, that same journey that I did. And then we we have a much younger brother. So he's 10 years younger than I am. And so uh -huh. he was born in the U.S., grew up here. Yeah. And so, uh, so your father uh, led the family initially to somewhere in South America, right? You mentioned Buenos Aires. Yes, we lived in South America for two years. So during that time period, we moved uh, to various countries. Um, and, you know, my, my recollection of that time was very sketchy. I was very young at the uh, time. Right, right. <laughs> I only remember these snippets from Argentina uh, going to preschool uh, there. Uh, but that, that was a time when... Uh, you know, many people were leaving Korea to find a better life elsewhere. Yeah. And so uh, some of my relatives still live in South America, uh, but my my parents' ultimate goal was to make it to the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great that you have relatives in South America if you like to travel and you want to visit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're planning a trip down there. Uh, at some point, we'd love to visit that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so you mentioned that your father, since the book is about trust, and you indicate that he had a lot of trust in the American dream, even though he was not an American yet, but it was sort of a, a gravitational pull for him to the, the thought that he could have a better life for his family in the U.S., that was certainly the motivation to to find that better life. Uh, I don't think their lives were terrible in Korea, but you know this was post war. There was a lot of rebuilding to do, and and uh, still a lot of sacrifices being made back then. Uh, and you know the the. My my father grew up uh, watching Hollywood movies. <laughs> he watched so many. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it was one of his loves, and it certainly instilled this idea that uh, you know the United States was full of possibility, and 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 just seeing all the land uh, here, seeing all the. Uh, all the the, the the trappings of living in the U.S., uh, he he was enamored. Uh, it, it was what he wanted uh, for a very yeah. long time. Yeah, as, as for so many immigrants. And Hollywood was a great, <laughs> really did a good job of, uh, of painting the good life, you know, in, in many of the movies. And a lot of the movies portrayed people that were pretty affluent and so on. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. And uh, yeah, I grew up on all of those movies as well, <laughs> and and uh, and and definitely bought into the American dream as well. Um, so, uh, so your parents, um, uh, while they had this trust in the American dream, at the same time they had uh, many setbacks and. Uh, Somehow they saved enough money to open a, a grocery store. Tell us about that. So it was a, it, it wasn't a grocery store. It was a, it was a little shop that sold all sorts of things. I think they sold different things <laughs> at different periods, and yeah. and it was really just the the product of them uh, talking to other people in their immigrant community about what would what would sell, what would do well. And uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, when they first arrived, you know, uh, they, they, my father became a bartender, my mother became a waitress and, you know, they scrimped and saved to start that business. And they ran that business uh, for, 
you know, a good number of years, uh, but it was always a, a tumultuous experience. It was not in the safest of neighborhoods. There were robberies. There, you know, uh, there, there were many uh, tough times, um, and and it's no different than the experience of many other immigrants. I would say who are you know arrive here without you know, maybe, maybe without the advanced degree. Uh, both my parents had college degrees, but that really didn't mean much here. Wow. Uh, and uh, well, what, what were the degrees in? So they, they you know, they, I asked you before, you know, what did they want to be or plan to be? The, they must have studied something in college that would more or less align with that. Well, I, you know, I, I think my father... Uh, if, if this may be incorrect, but my recollection is that he studied English literature, <laughs> so that okay. probably would not be so helpful here in the U.S. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not quite sure what my mother studied, but it, you know, th these were not technical fields that they got their degrees in. Yeah, they, yeah. they were in the humanities, and and so it's it's hard enough if you grow up in the U.S. studying the humanities, getting a job. Yeah. Uh, it, it, if you're an immigrant, that's e even more difficult. So, did they have to move their store uh, from? The, the, were they in the same? neighborhood the whole time that you were growing up or did it the, the store was in the same neighborhood the entire time uh, uh -huh. but we moved quite a bit uh, from one neighborhood to another based on circumstances based on the desire to uh you know enroll in better schools and things like that so we we lived in all sorts of neighborhoods you know within the city uh southern suburbs northern suburbs um in different ethnic communities so all sorts of uh different uh communities uh, that that you know that that each you know opened my eyes a little bit to the world yeah 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 yeah, I, I can relate to that because i moved around a lot uh in my early years as well due to parental things that were happening and uh, um, and the, the, the I have this image we were talking about the movies and I have this image from the media that's become almost archetypal of uh, Koreans running a, a store often a grocery store in uh the movies that I'm thinking of usually were in an African American neighborhood, and and sometimes they get murdered, they get robbed a lot, and uh, so it sounds like you know I'm thinking of The Wire. I don't know if you ever watched that series, and I don't remember. I've watched so, a few episodes. Yes, I, I yeah, enjoyed it, but I don't know why I didn't have the time to keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so. I, I, you must have run across examples in literature and, and film and TV of that sort of scenario. Uh, and uh, so that I, that, and since I grew up in some of those kinds of neighborhoods myself, um, there was always that level of fear. Did you have to deal with prejudice, you know, as when you were growing up, when you were in, in high school and junior high and and all that. It's it's a good question. I you know I I think I would probably put it in the category of being an outgroup member, uh, in general. So I was the outsider, regardless of the community. Yeah. Uh, how much of that was due to prejudice versus other things? Uh, it's hard for me to say. I was pretty young at the time. Uh, I would probably say that it was, there's certainly instances uh, of, of prejudice and certainly um, moments where it was clear that we were not welcome. And, and so that was, you know, uh, that was very salient to me. Uh, at the same time, it, it was something that I wouldn't 
connect direct that wasn't the sole cause I, I think you know part of it was that we were very much unlike them uh, yeah. in in other ways and you know uh maybe we lived on the wrong side of the, of the tracks maybe it's because uh, I, I wasn't wearing the same clothes as others and you know we we were always the outsider um, and especially as kids uh, it, it's uh, very salient when you are in unfamiliar waters dealing with people you've never dealt with before having yeah. to find a way to get accepted in those groups and 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 figuring out well how do you how do you how do you build your own community uh, in that kind of circumstance when everyone is so clearly different we were always the only Korean family, for example, wow, <laughs> in the <wow>. neighborhood. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that you were probably a pretty brainy kid as well. And uh, and that <laughs> maybe you did well in school and classes. And that also can mark one for bullying and so on. Yeah, I, I would say that I was never bullied uh, in that Good. way, <laughs> I, I think. Yeah. I think it, it, it in part, uh, it was helpful because uh, I... I, I I was one of the larger kids when I was younger, <laughs> so uh, oh, I was not marked that, for bullying. Oh, oh that, that that does help. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of of being a brainy kid, I I, I would imagine that certainly uh, put me in certain categories. Uh, I, I I was also a pretty active kid, so in general, you know. Um, in terms of the markings of what you would think of as a healthy, well-adjusted kid, I was very active in in sports and 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 as well as school. So so that that helped. I think. Yeah, that does help. Yeah, where it made, I think, uh, you know, where being uh, I'm a slightly brainy kid in in uh, you know in in a school made uh, me feel a little bit unusual was uh, was actually in what in high school where all the brainy kids were from affluent families and I was a brainy kid that was not and, uh -huh. and so it became uh, very much like a uh, the narrator in The Great Gatsby. <laughs> so I, I, I was uh, yeah. surrounded by people. So this was at a time when we lived in this neighborhood. I, I did not live in the neighborhood, but I went to the high school yeah. where a lot of the people there uh, were, you know, nouveau riche in, in, in terms of family background. And uh, and one of the markings of status was your ability to show that you were wealthy. And and so the nice clothes, the nice car, and right. so on. And uh, I I certainly had none of that. <laughs> yeah, ouch, ouch. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it it, it definitely shaped uh, my sense of belonging, um, and, and 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 you know, and and so there are both pros and cons. You know, the the yeah. the cons were feeling like. Uh, you know, I didn't belong. Uh, I was not, you know, I, I was not able to join these social activities. Like, even when I was invited, some of these things, like going to a concert, uh, you know, for them, this was just a normal thing. Why don't we go to this, this major concert? And I, I couldn't imagine spending that much to go pay for a ticket for one night. <laughs> to oh, go to yeah. Concert. Right, right. Yeah. Wow, so, I can really un understand that. Yeah, so uh, um, it, you know, in that sense, it was it was difficult. Uh, but the upside was that I did eventually make some very good friends, and through those friendships, I was exposed to things I would never have been exposed to: art, uh -huh. music, and 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 so that that broadened my horizons in, in ways that would not have been broadened uh, if I, I didn't have those experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking you must have developed some survival skills along the way. And and uh, certainly, and I was in a similar situation in regard to that. And and somehow I always had a coterie of, a small coterie of friends. And uh, not huge, but uh, 
but people, you know, where I could, they could help me pass one way or another <laughs> and, and survive. So now I, now I get friendly with people on, on the air. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, we are imprinted by those experiences, right? And uh, it, it, I think one of the things it does for me is make me very sensitive to when people are feeling like outsiders yeah. and, and, and trying to welcome them uh, and, yeah. and, 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 and just being aware of that, you know? Right. So. Right. Yeah. So there are definitely benefits of, uh, of this broader experience. I know I found that to be true in my life and, and, uh, uh, more empathy, realizing that uh, uh, people, the backgrounds that people come from, may give them advantages, disadvantages, whatsoever. But whichever way, but that uh, having walked in many along many paths, one has an ability to kind of empathize and understand, and. Um, so what was college like for you? What did you major in as uh, in college? Mm. Well, uh, college was a transformative experience for me uh, in, in large part because that was the first time I was in an environment where I felt like And we um, lost our sorry. connection. Yes, for um, so uh, I think I, I am logged on to Zoom on another computer, and that uh, somehow tries to try to log me out of this one. Oh, but oh, I think... uh, no. yeah, there, uh, there was no glitch on this end. <laughs> okay, good. All right, that's good to hear. I, I just needed to pull this back up. Uh, so, um, my apologies for that. Uh, so, college was the first time where. I could feel like I I could relate to people as an individual with all the societal baggage uh, being so apparent. So I went to a small liberal arts university uh, initially with the idea of getting a dual degree, uh, one in the humanities and uh, another in engineering. So they had this special kind of program where you would start off there and then you would move off to either Caltech or I think Columbia for your engineering degree. Um, I, I eventually did not opt for the engineering side because uh, in my first year at the university, I spent the entire first semester or first year uh, doing math. <laughs> I just realized I, I needed more balance in my life uh, that maybe engineering wasn't right for me. Uh, but from a, a social perspective, this was finally a setting where uh, we were all sort of on a level playing field uh, and and the emphasis was not on how much wealth your family had. It was on, yeah. you know, just you as an individual. And in fact, the, you know, the, the effort was made to downplay your background. Um, and, and so it was a very open uh a place. And so I finally uh, was in a situation where I could just connect to people on a one-on-one -on -one basis and as human beings with, without all, all that extra baggage. And so it was a very liberating time for me where I really came into my own. Yeah, I would have, would have thought that you were in the social sciences because you, in the book, you mentioned that you've always uh, were leaning to some degree in that direction. And and here you've written this book, which is very much uh, in the social domain, and you're in a school of business. Uh, how, you're, you're faculty in a school of business. <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> right. So uh, I ultimately majored in psychology and economics. Uh, okay, in, there we in, go. <laughs> in college. Uh, and so I, I gravitated towards those subjects very quickly, uh, precisely because it gave, it gave, they gave me a lens into human nature and how we relate to one another. Uh, more psychology, but uh, economics to some degree as well on a broader scale. And, 
And what intrigued me was the disconnects between those two areas of study, because sometimes they would study a similar topic, for example, uh, criminal behavior and, and, oh. and, and the attitudes and the, the views about that same topic were so very different. And so I became very intrigued by those disconnects and, and in pursuing uh, a more interdisciplinary uh, uh, form of study. And so uh, during the time I was at the university, I, I, I had some fantastic uh, mentors who kept encouraging me to be an academic. I never thought about that as a career, just because you know you grow up as an immigrant, and then you're you're uh, every every signal is to say uh, you need a secure job <laughs> that pays yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had always imagined that I would go uh, into private industry and get some job. Uh, I remember at one point, my mother recommended that I get a job at a utility company because it's a secure job. Right. So, right. so this is the mindset of uh, someone who deals with so much uncertainty in, in, in their lives. And, uh, but uh, I, I, I had these uh, mentors in part because I got involved in research as an undergraduate. I, I had this, Maybe it's from the Hollywood movies, this idea of a scientist working away in a, in a lab and reaching yeah. this eureka moment. And it, it always seemed, you know, very intriguing to me. So I wanted to give that a try. And and over time, uh, you know, I'd worked for three or four different uh, research labs there. And uh, I, I had a, a fantastic mentor who recommended this area of study called organizational behavior, which was very interdisciplinary in nature and which would uh, allow me to uh, to achieve uh, the kinds of goals that I, I had in mind and, and hadn't really thought about this as an option. I, you know, we didn't even have that as a field of study at my school. So um, it was through her nudging that I finally started to explore it seriously. I'm amazed at uh, how many parallels there are in our lives because uh, I started in electrical engineering. I was accepted uh, at the Univers University of Pennsylvania in electrical engineering. and uh, But because of the heavy math that I wasn't prepared for, uh, switched not into psychology. I took a psychology course, but I was so turned off by the behaviorist emphasis mm. Mm -hmm. uh, that I ended up majoring in creative writing. And then I came to that place where, oh, let's see, I need to be able to support myself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of how I found my way into, into psychology. And um, so, and, and, uh, and along the way, OD became a, a focus for me too, because I got very interested in, in group work and group behavior and um, uh, but enough about my story. Let's get more into into your book here because your book is about trust and uh, and I wanted to uh, to delve into the development of trust in your life and that whole background and and sort of um, you know wondered well how did it become as such a significant thing for you. So tell us what, tell us, give us, you've done a bunch of research for what, 20 years worth of research. Mm. And, and uh, what have you found out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sh shall I answer your first question first, how the trust became such a major part of my life? Uh, sure. Before? Okay. Yeah. So, so one, one of the things uh, that uh, is essential for trust is a willingness to make yourself vulnerable in situations involving risk. And as yeah. an immigrant moving from one community to the other, that sense of risk was so palpable. It was always central. And uh, and so there was always this decision of who, who do we make ourselves vulnerable to? 
uh, and uh, as a child, it was uh, especially salient to me. Uh, so, so that's where these issues of trust became important. Uh, and also more broadly, this question of identity, because ultimately I study uh, the matter of trust from the lens of identity, uh, who we are, how do we negotiate who we are, how do other people see us and so on. And, um, and trust is one of the most vital elements of that. You know, are we a trustworthy person or not? And yeah. so uh, as we move from one community to the other, it was always this quest for uh, a, a, an identity, a, an identity of a successful person, someone who belonged, someone who uh, could fit into that society. So that question, this, this need to constantly reinvent uh, ourselves in order mm -hmm. to approximate that goal, uh, converge right. on that goal, uh, was that was so palpable. Uh, and then the other thing that it made salient to me and that has informed so much of my research, and this gets to the second part of your question, is it also made me aware of how often we get these perceptions wrong, uh, how Moving into these different communities, there are all sorts of preconceptions uh, about uh, people that we make uh, that that have very little to do with the actual trustworthiness of the person in question. And, and so, you know, uh, the various cues we rely on, uh, the simple fact that we're part of the same group or not part of the same group, how we look, uh, you know, where we live. All of that became very salient to me. The, these, these superficial cues that may have very little to say about you as a person uh, can make such an important difference in the trust we exhibit. And, and, and you know, this, this is something that, that we all do. I mean, we can't avoid it. They, they, we are all uh, uh, signal detectors in that sense. We, we rely on these yeah. cues. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you discovered that there are a variety of cognitive errors, if you will, that we make. And, and there were some prizes, some surprises that came out of your research in which you found that uh, because of those superficial <laughs> things that people could identify with, that they uh, tend to, what we tend to think of ourselves as trust as trustworthy. That's one, and there may be a cognitive, a bunch of cognitive errors there. <laughs> but we, but we tend to perceive ourselves in a more or less positive light in relation to to trust, and so we kind of overgeneralize to the larger population that we identify with, right? Yeah, so I, I, that would be a common theme uh, in in my research, trying to identify all these errors that we make, uh, and there are so many. Uh, some that lead to this this sense that we are better people than other people might believe uh, about yeah. us, uh, simply because of the way we engage in this sort of moral accounting process. Uh, other things that relate to things in our mental basement that leads us to weigh some cues much more heavily than other cues. Uh, for example, you know, uh, we have these asymmetries where we, you know, weigh positive information so much more heavily than negative information when it comes to matters of competence. Uh, so if you are a baseball player and you hit a home run, you're considered a home run hitter, even though you might strike out the next time. And it's because we believe that many things can affect the success of even highly competent people. Maybe the person had an injury or the sun was in his eyes as he was up to bat and so on. So we can discount negative information about competence. But um, we have this very different asymmetry when it comes to matters of integrity. We weigh negative information about integrity so much more heavily than positive information about integrity. So uh, if you're caught cheating on your spouse and you respond by saying, I didn't cheat on you yesterday, it's not going to work out so well. <laughs> it's yeah. because <laughs> that negative instance is considered so diagnostic in our minds. The, uh -huh. the, the sense that you are... The, the promise that you're not going to do it again, the, the remorse you might convey, that's discounted uh, for matters of integrity. 
And, uh, and those asymmetries are really important because, you know, so much of what we convey in these kinds of situations after trust has been violated, uh, a lot of the signals we can convey, like, for example, uh, an apology, uh, those signals are double-edged in nature. You know, an apology signals that you regret the offense, but it also confirms that you committed the offense, right? <laughs> it, it signals yeah. both guilt and redemption. Yeah. And if we're to think about the repair of trust more broadly, it is ultimately about how we weigh matters of guilt and redemption. But if, if we weigh those signals very differently in different situations, and we're not even aware of these, the, the, these, these asymmetries, then we are setting ourselves up to make uh, errors in these judgments all the time. And you point out that... Uh... Uh, it, it's very hard to earn trust back once you've lost it. It's kind of like it's a, it's a slippery slope in terms of interpersonal relationships. Uh, and uh, once you've gone <laughs> to the, to the deficit side, it's really hard to to get back. Uh, or, or the you mentioned. Uh, fidelity and marriage are there other examples that come to mind sure so i i think this gets to an assumption that we have about how trust develops and is managed and you know for example one of the assumptions we have is that trust starts at zero and only builds gradually over time as we get to know one another but it turns out that's not the case at all uh the the evidence uh, i've uh, accumulated through a variety of studies makes clear that Trust starts at surprisingly high levels initially in, in many circumstances. Uh, and we're, we're just not recognizing how often that happens. So every time we dine at a restaurant, for example, we, we are exhibiting enormous levels of trust uh, in the people we have never met who assembled the ingredients on our plate. You know, that includes uh -huh. farmers, distributors, <laughs> resellers, the cooks in the back, you know, in okay. the back, the waitress and waiter. So, you know, and when you make mistakes there, it can be pretty serious. You know, I, I know of a case not too long ago in, I think, maybe Washington State where some people died from eating a milkshake <laughs> because the machines uh -huh. hadn't been cleaned adequately. And, wow. you know, you know yeah. over half of the 73,000 cases of E. coli uh, infection are transmitted through food and, and that can be deadly. So, you know, we're exhibiting trust a lot. We're just not even, we're just not aware of it or conscious of how often we do that. Uh, but if we were to think about it, you know, imagine a world in which trust did start at zero, we would never be able to leave our homes. Uh, so, so it's functional for us to exhibit at least some initial trust in others uh, to allow for us to navigate the world and to engage with one another productively. But at the same time, we're extremely sensitive to violations of risk and, and so sensitive, in fact, that uh, even unfounded allegations by people we've never met uh, that, that cannot be substantiated are sufficient for us to lower our trust dramatically in, in the those who are accused. And so, you know, th that's the other side of the coin. We are so sensitive yeah. to these potential violations that uh, we it'll go, uh, the level of trust will plummet below those initial trust levels. And then from there, you have this dual problem. One, how do you elevate the trust? But also, how do you eliminate the mistrust? Uh, that that's been sort of created through the allegation. Yeah, right now I'm thinking of how social media have magnified uh, the potential, I guess maybe on the positive side, but also very much on the negative side where your, your uh, rep reputation can be destroyed by people who have never met you uh, don't know you personally. They might have heard something, or they might have got an impression from, or they might have heard some gossip about you, and and then your reputation can plummet. Yeah, yeah, and these accusations are being made all the time in, in 
all forms of media, including social media, and, and they're probably a particularly bad culprit <laughs> on that yeah. front. And, and this this gets to another uh, another problem with how we make these judgments. For example, uh, we like to think that we are rational and careful in making these assessments, but we're not at all. Uh, it turns out that uh, when this new information is conveyed, this this kind of allegation, our immediate response is to believe it. And then we only on occasion devote the time to question whether or not that's true or not. If we have the motivation, time and opportunity to do so, but we often don't. (laughs) And as we're constantly bombarded by this information, we we less and less often get to that second stage where we can actually make that more deliberative judgment. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, you uh, let's enlarge the lens even further as you do in the book, which is to look at uh, uh, internationally in terms of perceptions of one country, one people of another, or one government of another, and so on. And you go into uh, uh, into the massacres that you've looked into. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember some, I had some notes for myself here. The gross human rights violations in South Africa. Yeah, uh, yes, Nazi yes. Germany and yeah, yeah, Rwanda. exactly. Rwanda, yeah. And and now what's going on in the Ukraine, uh, between mm-hmm. Russia and the Ukraine. And and this puts all of us at great danger. Um, so talk to us about that and what both the, the dangers and what are the possible fixes or cures and and you know in our own society we see this big split right now and uh where do you find reason for hope <laughs> in, any of, in any of these situations i think it's easy to to find uh evidence for uh for despair mm-hmm. how do you yeah <laughs> Uh, so uh, that was certainly uh, one of the motivations for writing the book, recognizing uh, how bad things are uh, today. And uh, yeah. and it was enough. Yeah. If, if it weren't so bad, I might have been perfectly happy continuing to do the research and, and publishing the scientific papers and building that body of knowledge and waiting until I had a more complete answer. Uh, r- right now, it, it was it's it's so bad. I felt compelled to report what I found so far yeah, in an attempt yeah. to help helped address some of these issues. Uh, so, one way of thinking about the book is, uh, in many ways, it, it's like peeling the layers of an onion, uh, and each chapter uh, conveys a different problem with how we're seeing the world uh, that that adds to uh, the, 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 our understanding of these issues. And so when I finally get to this, you know, these international issues, uh, international situations, that's when I start pulling it all together uh, and, and helping uh, with the goal of helping people understand how it all fits. Uh, and so one through line in the book and gets to this issue of how we perceive matters of competence and integrity. So I, I, I posit this early on in the book that there are these asymmetries, but then I start exploring, well, what do we even mean by that distinction? Uh, how do we make these distinctions between competence and integrity? And do we do them well? Do we make these distinctions well? And it turns out we don't do that either. And, and so, you know, uh, so so I explore that issue and then I examine this question of what does integrity really mean? It, all it means is that others adhere to principles we find acceptable. Uh, but it turns out that when you look in the broader world, uh, that's not a simple judgment to make because the evidence uh, from the social sciences indicates that we may all uh, gravita- 
gravitate towards a certain set of values. I think there are five or six core values that have been identified in the literature. But even if we share those principles, we prioritize those principles differently. So what does this mean in a situation where you're dealing with other groups that, you know, in the political sphere or internationally? Uh, it, it can mean that people can develop very different conceptions of integrity uh, based on how they prioritize these values. And if you prioritize these values in a certain way and others don't exhibit behavior consistent with that that, that, that rank ordering, it is very easy to condemn others as uh, uh, having low integrity, as believing that their integrity is low. But if that difference is the result of them prioritizing those values differently, they won't agree with you. They will believe that they have integrity and in fact feel unfairly maligned for you right. pointing uh, your finger at them and they will in turn do the same to you. So what does this create? It creates a situation where people are essentially trying to impose their value systems on others. It creates a situation of where the incentive, incentive is essentially dominance. You want to make the other side relent and accept your values, and they will try to do the same thing to you. It gets us nowhere. And it's only, and so one of the things that the book sort of raises is, uh, it's only when we move beyond this orientation towards dominance to an orientation uh, that involves dialogue of actually recognizing that our value systems might be somewhat different, but we can if we can recognize that they are still good people, then it becomes a different kind of conversation. It's not merely a matter of imposing our value system on them. It's about negotiating how best to achieve the values that we all share. Uh, and so it becomes a matter of how rather than a matter of what. Uh, and I think that's that's the hope for moving forward. It's the hope that is evidenced by uh, many uh, examples, uh, not only into the international relations sphere, but even in, for example, uh, labor management disputes where two sides will be uh, in a battle uh, where they try to overwhelm the other through force. And it's only when each side recognizes that this isn't working, uh, that domination is not going to solve yeah. the problem. And they're in a difficult position, a painful position that they start becoming more open to the possibility of real dialogue, of, of coming up with a negotiated solution that both sides can live with. I'm hearing the organization development side of your uh, of your uh, background and study there. And uh, uh, I think a lot of organizational work is predicated on idea, on those ideas, particularly of dialogue. Uh, who's the target audience for this book? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it's a question that um, that I've been asked before in, in, in slightly different ways. And my response is that I didn't write the book to target a specific audience as much as I wrote it to tackle an emotion, and the emotion, uh, or, or that 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 feeling, the sentiment of of loss of people feeling like we are in a bad place, yeah. that we have uh, we have entered this era in which we are all pointing fingers. We can't even talk to one another at our own dining tables at home. Uh, political differences have become the basis for uh, immediate eruptions of anger. It's, it's for people who are, are at a point where they realize this is not something we can sustain it, it, and are looking for a way to understand these problems and uh, a way to navigate these kinds of issues. Yeah. I, what about... Uh... 
people in government, would they be good <laughs> good target for reading this book and maybe get some ideas about how to move on? Absolutely. You know, so, uh, you know, the, the latter half of the book talks about a variety of societal issues, uh, yeah. political differences. It gets to uh, differences that that um, can arise. You know, it, it covers the 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 riots in Charlottesville, Virginia, and, and, and so on, and, and uh, the various instances of uh, police transgressions that have been in the news uh, over the past few years. So it really does have implications for uh, us as a society. So people, you know, politicians, people in government who are eager to make the world a better place. Uh, I, I would hope they would be open to these ideas. I would say that one thing um, that the book, one audience the book is not intended to serve uh, are people who are interested in just, uh, you know, these these kinds of superficial how-to guides and quick fixes. Yeah. Uh, because uh, there are plenty of books like that, right? Especially in the self-help arena that just give you like six tips. There are so many uh, <laughs> people I interview are, you know, write those kinds of books. And it's, it's refreshing for me to, uh, <laughs> to come across someone who is not doing that and is saying, yes, it's a serious situation going on here. And it's really going to require some deep thought and deep dialogue, deep change. Right. And, and you know, it, it, and it's, you know, for some topics, you know, a, a set of quick, you know, six or seven tips for how to approach it has a real value. And so I'm not intending to dismiss that kind of uh, book, but for this topic, I don't think uh, it, it would be suitable because well, first of all, the findings from my research could be easily abused. Uh, in a way, I've approached the book in the way I have because it is quite easy to uh, to to interpret the findings in a way that's very instrumental and that's just designed to you know get you know to allow you to do bad things and get away with it. And that's not the point of my research. It is. It is similar to, you know, a scientist and the hard scientists who come up with a way of, uh, you know, creating an, an explosion and that explosion, you know, that, that knowledge could be put to good or ill. And I was very sensitive to the possibility that the, the findings could be misapplied. And uh, the, the positive side of this for me is that if all you're interested in is the quick fix, then you're you're not going to use the insights properly. You you're, you're going to miss the important stuff. Uh, you probably blow yourself up <laughs> if that's your goal. <laughs> um, and, and and that's why I, I, I've taken this approach of uh, you know uh, in, of providing additional insights with each chapter, so that by the end you have. Uh, a more comprehensive understanding of what this takes. And, and hopefully through that understanding, uh, a greater desire to deal with this knowledge responsibly. That's the ultimate goal. Well, you've given us a lot to, to uh, reflect on here. And uh, so Dr. Peter Kim, I wanna thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Once again, it was easy to bond with my recent guest, Peter H. Kim, Ph.D., during our discussion of his 2023 book, How to Repair Trust. Despite the fact that he was born in Korea and me in the U.S., there were many similarities in our backgrounds. We both spent the majority of our childhoods in Los Angeles. We both were moved around to different neighborhoods by our parents, who wanted us to be safe and go to better schools. Due to these frequent moves, we each had the experience 
of being the new kid, the outsider. In spite of the constant moves, we both were challenged to develop good friendship skills and ended up with an ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes and to be empathetic listeners. We both got accepted into engineering majors, only to switch later into psychology. We both studied organization development. Interestingly, he ended up as a professor in the School of Business at the University of Southern California. The neighborhood I lived in for most of my teen years was only a mile or so from USC. So you can see why we were able to make a strong connection. He had spent the last 20 years or so researching trust and has just written a book on that topic. I spent a lot of our time exploring his experiences of what it was like to grow up in the U.S. as the son of Korean immigrants and how those experiences informed his passion for trust issues. Interestingly, his parents were from North Korea before that country was partitioned. We have so many negative impressions of North Korea today that I was surprised to learn that his family had been relatively affluent and both father and mother had earned university degrees. As a result of the Korean War, they were forced to flee the country and forsake all their assets. When Peter was just two years old, they immigrated to Argentina, where other relatives had already located. Imagine the courage and trust that immigrant families must have to forsake everything they had in the hopes of a better life for their offspring. Peter's father was a fan of Hollywood movies, and they played a strong role in determining his goal to live in the American dream. This country has drawn so many with similar stories. Peter recognizes the universality of these beginnings, and makes no claim that it was tougher for him or his family or Koreans in general. That humility is one thing I really appreciate about Peter. His research has turned up some surprising findings. As human beings, we are prone to a variety of cognitive errors around trust, including misattribution, overgeneralization, and denial, among others. We tend to believe ourselves to be trustworthy and consequently tend to believe that of others, such as politicians that we identify with or people with whom we share superficial similarities. Toward the end of the book, Peter acknowledges the horrible state of the world in recent history, such as the massacres and the Holocaust, more recently Rwanda and the attempted coup on January 6th in the U.S. Capitol, and Putin's war against Ukraine. Peter also reviews our attempts at reparations and restorative justice. Our track record is not good. Peter confides that the reason he got this book out now rather than waiting to collect more research results is that his data suggests that we are in dire danger both nationally and internationally. At all levels, we need to stop polarizing and yelling at one another and instead assume the goodwill of the opposing sides and instead engage in real dialogue and deep listening. I really respect Peter's integrity in admitting that there are no easy answers such as one might find in a self-help book. I hope that people in government and organizational decision roles will find their way to this book. Whoever you are, I trust you will find the seeds of wisdom here. My name's Trish and I'm a psychologist and psychotherapist. I've donated to Shrinkwrap Radio because I think it's a fantastic resource. I live in a rural area several hours' drive from the state capital and I don't get to attend many seminars. Shrinkwrap Radio is a tangible contributor to my ongoing professional development. It helps me keep up to date and I love hearing the leaders in the trauma and interpersonal neurobiology fields talk about their work. It gives me a different perspective on their ideas and helps me get my head around some of the complexities. I also really appreciate the Jungian and transpersonal things that Dr. Dave covers. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Dave. I appreciate what you do for all of us. Thank you, Trish. I'm so glad to hear that Shrinkwrap Radio has helped you to grow professionally in your rural area. And thanks for encouraging others to follow your fine example. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Peter H. Kim for his groundbreaking research and 2023 book on trust and for his trusting and friendly presence with me. Next week, my guest will be Jill Stoddard, Ph.D., speaking about her new book, Imposter No More, Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. So until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourself, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.